0: Lobbying is incredibly important. As government officials try their best to make informed economic policy, these policymakers are finding it harder and harder. Industries and supply chains keep getting more complicated. Officials are being asked to implement industrial policy, tariffs, regulations, and export controls, which all require incredibly detailed information. Communicating the right information to government officials to help them make those policies is now more crucial than ever. And lobbyists are often the people tasked with doing that communication. At the same time that lobbying is becoming more and more important, the public seems to know less and less about it. And what the public does know about lobbying, it doesn't like.
1: Earlier today in U.S. District Court here in Washington, D.C., Former lobbyist Jack Abramoff pled guilty to three separate felony offenses conspiracy, mail fraud, and tax evasion. Abramoff has agreed to cooperate in the ongoing public corruption probe led by the Department of Justice.
0: This episode explores Washington's lobbying industry. What do lobbyists do? How do they do it? How does lobbying affect whether sectors in the real economy organize politically? How does that then impact the policies that come out of Washington, including on trade? How can lobbyists be held more accountable? To tackle all of this, I will be joined by a very special guest.
1: Matilda Bombardini, UC Berkeley High School of Business.
0: Matilda Bombardini is an economics professor at the University of California, Berkeley. She's an expert on trade, on firms, and especially on lobbying. Matilda has spent most of the last two decades studying lobbyists. And today she is going to share some of her research to help us understand the lobbying industry in Washington. Hi, Matilda. Hi, Chad. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade and policy. I'm your host, Chad Bown, the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. Matilda, to start, how do you define lobbying and what are some of the basic trade-offs associated with lobbying?
1: The way that I think about lobbying is some communication of some information that comes from either a firm or a corporation in general that is received by the policymaker. The policymaker could be a regulatory agency, it could be a politician, anybody that designs a policy that information can be useful to politicians. And then sometimes we think that that information may not be useful to conduct solid policymaking. So the different models that come both from economics and from political science are essentially there to guide our thinking about when this is good and when it it is not, and when does it lead to uh, better policy and when that it doesn't uh, lead to better policy.
0: Tell us more about the theory and these models from economics and political science. How does political influence affect the process of making economic policy?
1: There are two different theories of political influence. So one is the theory of lobbying, and we tend to call that informational lobbying. And it is the process by which you try to communicate some information although the person that you are trying to communicate the information to, in this case politicians, know that you are biased in your position. And so only in some cases you manage to convey that information credibly. But when you do manage to convey that information, you do produce better policies that are more informed. For example, in the aftermath of the uh, financial crisis, one of the pieces of legislation was the Dodd-Frank. And this required firms to keep some of the securities that they issued on their books. And different types of banks may have found that rule to be more or less costly. In particular, uh, smaller financial institutions may have found that to be particularly costly. And so they needed to communicate that to the regulator. and so. Being able to communicate that credibly to the politician can lead to a better assessment of cost and benefits of the rule. The second type of influence is referred to as quid pro quo, but it really is the idea that you are offering campaign contributions in exchange for tilting policy in your favor. For example, when you are maybe offering campaign contributions to put a tariff on Good that you produce so that you may increase the price, reduce the availability, and make it more profitable for you.
0: Lobbying is one way to get access to policymakers. Another that you mentioned is through campaign contributions, as some policymakers are politicians who need to be elected to their office by the voting public. Lots of listeners will have made campaign contributions and so are going to have some familiarity with that. But client companies who demand lobbying services can also make contributions to a politician's campaign. In the United States, what is the difference between what a client firm gets out of lobbying compared to what a client firm gets from offering campaign contributions?
1: So lobbying is really the process by which a firm or another entity communicates to a politician a specific position on a policy. Campaign contributions is funding for elections, for campaigns that is passed from sometimes a firm and sometimes an individual to a politician. There are different types of contributions. One is individual uh, contributions that really a person does, and they can report their employer, but it's coming from them individually. And then there's what we call corporate PACs, which is Corporate Political Action Committee, which are essentially uh, a bucket to collect uh, donations on behalf of a specific uh, firm, let's say the United Airlines PAC that will collect individual donations from their employees, and then will donate to specific politicians in name of the firm. So often the reason why you wanna donate through the corporate PAC, is that you maybe want to support a policy position that you have advocated via lobbying. And so these two activities become complementary in the sense that you are talking to the politician about the specific policy position. Your lobbyist also recommends that you, as a firm, give a donation to open the conversation with that politician. But lobbying by itself does not involve any transfer of money.
0: In terms of the dollars at stake in the political process, which is bigger, what these client firms spend on campaign contributions or what they spend on lobbying?
1: Maybe because data on campaign contributions became available uh, much earlier in the 70s uh, when the Federal Election Commission was established, we have spent much more time measuring and writing papers about campaign contributions but the truth is that lobbying is a lot larger. And so campaign contributions will go from uh, 200 to $300 million per year, whereas lobbying is about an order of magnitude bigger with 3 to $4 billion a year.
0: One reason why we might care about lobbying is that it involves a lot of money. A $4 billion a year industry seems important. Why else does the public care about lobbying?
1: The reason we care about lobbying is twofold. And the first one appears more superficial, but in reality it's not. It's because the people care about lobbying and the perception is that there's an appearance of corruption that is associated with lobbying. And that is one of the reasons why we regulated. And per se, may be enough to give us a reason to regulate it. If it reduces the trust of the public in the political system, we have to bring more transparency to it. The other reason is because we, again, theoretically can predict that it brings to better decisions sometimes and to worse decisions sometimes. And again, the lobbying process itself is like a communication by a party that's informed to a party that's not informed but has to make some decisions. And so the politician can end up regulating banking or trade or healthcare and with some extra information maybe getting to better policy But because the information comes from a biased party, this may not always happen.
0: What does the American public think about lobbying and the lobbyists who are doing the industry's work?
1: The American public clearly thinks that lobbying is not good. Pew did a poll in 2018, and more than 50% of people said lobbying was a very big problem. Just to give you a reference point, Illegal immigration, which has filled the pages of newspaper and TV airtime, only 38% said it was terrible. Even compared to other occupations that are not viewed very favorably, like bankers, that's 25%. So lobbyists are perceived as worse than bankers.
0: What about you personally? What do you think about lobbying?
1: What I think about lobbying has changed over the years. I started off with very much this position that lobbying was bad, that it was primarily some form of quid pro quo. But now I have developed a more nuanced view. And I think that there are so many difficult areas to regulate and that regulation in many areas is so complicated and so complex and so information intensive that it is impossible to regulate effectively without specific information that only the people that we regulate have. So given this premise and this conviction that I've developed, the goal has been to try to measure uh, how much of the lobbying is actually driven by information and how much of it is driven by all the other things that we uh, believe are so nefarious.
0: Now I want to turn to research. To begin, How easy is it for researchers to even measure informational lobbying and then to trace it to how much lobbyists affect economic policy?
1: It is quite difficult to measure the extent of informational lobbying. There are cases in which you can measure what is told to the policymaker by firms. And that is the case, for example, for rulemaking, for for the uh, notice and comment procedure where on various regulations by federal agency like the um, SEC, then you will have a rule that's issued and then you will have comments by several parties involved. And we can measure the change in the rules from their preliminary version to the final version to see whether the comments of the banks, for example, have affected the rule more in the direction of the comments or not. But in other cases, it will be very hard to detect the role of lobbying because the very role of lobbying will be to prevent a piece of legislation from ever seeing the light of day. And so in those cases, we will never be able to tell what the effect of lobbying was.
0: One of the things that you do in your research is to compile data about the lobbying industry you have spent much of your career looking at data on lobbyists. What can you tell us about the people who work in Washington on K Street? What do we know about these lobbyists?
1: Thankfully, there is a lot of data now, thanks to the Lobby Disclosure Act of 1995, that allows us to observe what lobbyists lobby on, uh, the topics that they lobby on, how much they are paid. And so we can measure what topics they lobby on over their entire career. And the data is at the lobbyist level. So we know each individual, what they have worked on their entire lobbying career at the federal level. And so we can tell who gets paid more. And the lobbyists that are paid more are what we call generalists, um, as opposed to the specialists or the experts that focus their entire career on one topic.
0: Why are the generalists paid more? Why are those generalists more valuable to their lobbying clients than the subject matter specialists who might be more informed about the details of any given policy? That seems counterintuitive.
1: I'm not entirely sure, but that was one telltale that told us that perhaps it's not the information that is dominating the reason why lobbyists are paid but maybe the type of connections that uh, lobbyists have. So about 20% of lobbyists have uh, political experience that we can observe. And so we can classify about half and half uh, Republican and Democrats. Um, The sort of political experience that they have is that they were either former aides or former members of uh, Congress uh, or in the executive. And these connections are important because they make them credible to politicians that they talk to.
0: How do you measure political connections? And once you measure it, what is the relationship between how much lobbyists are paid and their political connections?
1: Uh, The way we measure connections is we look at campaign contributions that lobbyists have given to a politician. It will be rare for a politician to talk to a lobbyist and not have a campaign donations, even a small one, around the time that they talk. The research that we did showed that the the most paid ones are those that have a lot of connections with different politicians and lobby on a variety of topics.
0: How else did you examine whether these lobbyists are subject experts, like in tax or health or trade, and thus really providing useful information as compared to whether they are just an expert at having the right policymaker connections?
1: The other way that we try to measure whether lobbyists are really experts or they are rather experts in terms of the connections that they have is that we observe what happens when a uh, congressman or congresswoman moves from a uh, committee to another committee. So let's say they will start from the financial services committee and then uh, move to the healthcare uh, committee. The question that we ask is, is the lobbyist that was previously lobbying the politician that was on the financial services committee sticking with lobbying on financial issues or is that lobbyist now uh, lobbying on healthcare? And the answer is that we find quite a substantial amount of following the politician that you are sort of expert on. And so there's a lot of expertise that it's more about and knowing maybe what a politician needs to hear, uh, making yourself credible, investing in that specific relationship.
0: Tell us more about these lobbyists and where they work.
1: In our data sets, there are 10,000 to 15,000 lobbyists registered per year. And uh, there are two main types of lobbyists. One is the one that does it in-house. So companies, that are large, like Google or Bank of America will have their own in-house lobbyists that specialize on knowing their business and speak on their behalf. And then we have the lobbying firms, which are sometimes very small, one person, and sometimes are very large. And they are hired, sometimes continuously, by other firms that need their services. It has been the case that lobbying has been shifting from in-house to external, uh, one reason could be that smaller firms have had to start lobbying more uh, because regulation has been increasing over time. And to be able to support your own in-house lobbyist, you need to be a very large firm. And that, again, can be only done by large firms. And those are already lobbying. So the marginal ones that come in tend to be smaller.
0: Okay. What about the client firms of these lobbyists? Who hires the lobbyists to get their connections and their access to policymakers?
1: So clients can range from individual firms to nonprofits. Some of them are, again, large corporations. Some of them are industry associations like the Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Realtors large firms are disproportionately involved, and small firms are never appearing as individual clients. They always appear as part of an industry association, which is why those are pretty large. And then in terms of industries, the financial industry, insurance, healthcare, and banking, those are the regulation-heavy industries, and therefore are the ones that are more represented.
0: (laughs) Because this is Trade Talks, I have to ask you about trade policy. To start, why might businesses need to lobby over trade policy?
1: You can think that lobbying can target some very big votes that have been taken over the years. So, for example, going back to NAFTA or uh, the uh, granting to China of permanent uh, normal trade relations, and uh, even more recently, the the NAFTA uh, 2.0, which is USMCA. But the truth is that there are many other more subtle uh, dimensions that can be targeted by lobbying. So, for example, if you think about the lists of goods that were subject to tariffs in the several waves under President Trump, you can imagine that these lists were announced and then the rules were opened up for comments and then different groups would argue in favor of a certain good being placed on the list because they produce that good and so they're happy that the good is subject to tariffs. Other firms may lobby against a specific intermediate good being placed on the list. And so you may see that these lists are shaped very much by by lobbying. It is not just tariffs. In fact, if you go to the present day, it is also about export controls. The listeners are very familiar with semiconductors' export restrictions, and those rules are also subject to comments. You can shape what kind of chips are gonna be hit by the export controls, And we see that these adjustments are quite frequent over time. And so that's where I think that lobbying can be effective because it also is at the margin. And so you're not really doing anything major, but they can be very effective for specific companies.
0: Now I want to turn to your research on lobbying for trade policy. What got you started on trade lobbyists?
1: One of the things that struck me when I started looking at the lobbying data, which at the time was quite novel when I started working on this, was that I could observe lobbying by individual firms, and then quite a bit of lobbying was done by industry associations. And so we started puzzling about why you would make that choice. So if you are an individual uh, firm, let's say Pfizer, uh, you have a choice of lobbying as an individual firm, so hire your own lobbyist and, and make your argument, or you could be part of the uh, one of the pharmaceutical uh, industry associations and then lobby uh, as a group. Same thing with, if you imagine uh, a corn producer uh, can lobby on their own uh, as an individual producer, or they could be uh, part of the uh, national corn grower association. When looking at lobbying for trade policy, we really wanted to understand why uh, in some cases you observe lobbying on trade policy by individual firms versus in other cases you saw lobbying, again, for trade reasons and by trade associations.
0: What are the trade-offs that a firm has to consider when it is making the collective action choice, whether to lobby on its own or as part of the group? What is the basic theory?
1: Obviously a very important issue that arises is the one of collective action problem, which is the fact that um, if I um, lobby and obtain protection for a, an industry, an entire industry, everybody's gonna benefit from that. So as all public goods, unless you find a way to solve this collective action problem, you may have uh, free riding and so under provision of this public good.
0: This creates a puzzle. Lobbying is costly for firms. They would prefer to have someone else pay to lobby and then enjoy the collective benefits of tariffs. But if everyone in the industry thinks this way, then no one will lobby. This is the free rider problem and no one in the industry gets any tariff protection. How do you investigate this puzzle?
1: One dimension that could be important in explaining this puzzle is that firms really have a choice of either lobbying for a uh, tariff or some sort of protection that covers the entire sector, or they can really carve out more targeted protection on specific goods that they are producing. You know how fine the tariff schedule is in terms of different types of steel, and so a firm can also kind of decide to focus on very specific tariff lines that uh, they want to target. Conceptually, you can imagine that a firm has either an option to join uh, other firms in lobbying for a tariff that covers the entire steel sector, whereas if it goes at it alone, it has less of this free rider problem, but can really target their lobbying efforts to one specific type of steel, for example, that, that they produce.
0: Tell us more about the economic incentives here to lobby for tariff protection if, say, you're a company that makes steel.
1: So if I'm a steel producer and I produce a very specific type of uh, steel, I can focus my lobbying effort on that one product, and then I may raise the price on that product. But if my product is very substitutable with other types of steel, then the moment I succeed in raising this tariff, I may see some of my customers leave to go to other producers that produce somewhat similar and substitutable products. Whereas if the entire industry lobbies uh, for protecting the entire steel industry, then I don't face this uh, potential loss of business. So given this logic, in uh, sectors where goods are very substitutable, firms are not going to want to go at it alone because raising the tariff on the good that you specifically produce will increase your profits, but only to a certain extent because you're going to lose business to your uh, competitors. And so in those industries, we expect that the lobbying will be done in an organized way and through a trade association.
0: That is the theory When you examine all of the lobbying for trade policy in the United States across all sectors, what do you find?
1: What we find is that uh, the sectors where there is more competition are the ones where we observe more lobbying done as a industry association, which is counterintuitive because... You may think that the more competitive uh, industries are those where firms are trying to get an edge by doing things individually. We find that in industries where both the number of firms is larger or they are less concentrated, and in sectors where goods are more substitutable, more of the trade lobbying is done by uh, trade associations. Let me give you an example. about grapes. Imagine that I have green grapes and red grapes, and I'm thinking about the uh, green grape growers. From their point of view, if they succeed in uh, placing a tariff on green grapes, what customers are going to do, they're going to substitute and buy red grapes. Obviously, I don't want to do that. I would like to place a tariff on all types of grapes, which is why Typically, the lobbying is done by the National Grape Growers Association, who would represent both the green grape growers and the red grape growers.
0: What does this result teach us about the trade-offs associated with lobbying and the political organization of firms, as well as the impact that this has for a country's tariff protection?
1: So in the end, the sectors that do manage to organize through a trade association end up having higher tariffs despite the collective action problem, which is something that we did not expect at all to begin with. So what I found fascinating about this is that you may think that the Grape Growers Association case, that they may have a hard time collecting funds to then use for lobbying because, again, there is a collective action problem. But on the other hand, we find that a dollar spent by a trade association is more effective in obtaining higher tariffs than a dollar spent by individual firms. Yes, there's less money paid by industry associations, but they are more effective. I think it's because politicians like to have support and granting tariffs in support of an entire industry instead of picking and choosing individual producers to protect, and so that may be why it is more effective.
0: Stepping back from your research, I want to return to the big picture on lobbying and ask you more about trends in the underlying lobbying data. You've told us how the policymaking process works in the U.S., regulations and trade policy are getting more and more complicated, and policymakers would seem to benefit from more informational lobbying. Lobbying would seem to be a boom industry. Has the number of lobbyists been going up over time?
1: One thing that has emerged in the data over the years is that for a long time, the number of lobbyists, registered lobbyists was increasing. And then at some point in the early 2010s, the number of lobbyists that are registered and the amount of uh, lobbying revenues that are reported uh, started slowing down and then decline, which went against other numbers that showed that, for example, the total revenues of lobbying firms kept going up. So we are now a bit suspicious of uh, the the fact that everybody that should be reporting is reporting. There is a strict rule that defines you as a lobbyist, only if you spend 20% of your time as a lobbyist. But then there are ways of obviously defining what your total time is so that you can skirt this rule. And so some of the, the clients that we've seen that have Cast some doubt on whether we're capturing the entire activity has been around that fact.
0: It is worrying if the federal data on the lobbying industry is becoming less and less accurate because lobbyists are skirting around the reporting requirements. Matilda, as my last question, if you had one request for policymakers, when it comes to lobbying, what would it be?
1: So for policymakers, I think one goal should be to improve transparency of the lobbying process. This means collecting more information. Now it is true that the US is a leader in terms of putting out information about lobbying, so we are ahead, but we could do more. And because information is so easy to disseminate now, we can do it quite easily. One particular thing that I have been advocating is to report in the lobbying forms which member of Congress you are lobbying. Uh, Surprisingly, at this point, you only have to declare which agency or branch of government you are lobbying. You don't have to say which of the 435 congressmen you are lobbying. And so it is hard to trace influence if you only can see that you lobbied the Senate or the House of Representatives. So this is one small change that is easy to make in the forms and that could make a big difference to us trying to detect the bad forms of lobbying from the good forms of lobbying.
0: Matilda, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much. It was great.
0: And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Matilda Bombardini at the University of California, Berkeley. Do check out Matilda's research on lobbying. She has written and published so many amazing articles that we've talked about today. There are too many to mention, but I will post links to them all on the episode page of the Trade Talks website. Thanks to Melina Kolb, our supervising producer. Thanks to Sarah Tu on digital. As always, thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter or X. We're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to the different types of lobbyists, two is better than one.